Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and finally we're talking vampires. The proper kind with the teeth and all that stuff. Our guest is Jacqueline Holland, whose debut novel, The God of Endings, is out now. And as you'll hear, Jacqueline has a touch of imposter syndrome about being part of the horror community. And sure, her book is a karma spin on the whole blood-sucking thing. But tell me you don't want to read a book about an immortal vampire living through centuries of history and now working as a preschool teacher. (laughs) We talk about the history of New England vampires, about monstrous mothers, about immortality as a blessing or a curse, and we get into how Jacqueline has always been, in her own words, a dark weirdo. See, she does fit right in with our gang. And speaking of gangs or communities, if you want more Talking Scared, then you know the drill. Sign up for Patreon for bonus episodes and to help support this little show that could. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. And thanks a million. Now, come with me to an upmarket school for innocent little children. They're learning to be artists but the paint is suspiciously red. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Jacqueline, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are things? Things are good. I'm so excited to be here. It's always nice to hear. You were just saying you've actually listened to a few episodes. It's always massive ego boost when the guest has listened to other episodes. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually turning into a huge fan. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Where are you speaking to us from today? I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm in my office. Oh, cool. So, yeah, you're definitely the first guest from the Twin Cities. Definitely. Really? Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's a well, very literary city or m- pair of cities. Maybe it's not so a very I'm horror surprised. kind of city. Uh, yeah, maybe. What, what's it like living there as a writer of eerie fictions? Um, fucking cold. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of that winter desperation that <laughs> sets in. And, <laughs> yeah, but I but I feel like I need to say, first of all, even like it's funny hearing you say as a horror writer, I have some serious imposter syndrome being I feel like I wandered into the wrong podcast because I have never really thought of myself as a horror writer, but that's how the book has been characterized. So it's really interesting to me. Well, that's the bones of a good conversation, at least. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and the weird thing is with this show, we probably talk about horror for about five minutes and then it just becomes mm-hmm. like politics or like life experience or craft or, or whatever. So, yeah, I invited you. Don't feel like an imposter. <laughs> when I ask you where you are, the reason I asked is because, you know, you could have just as reasonably said an alpine village or a deep, dark Germanic forest and that would have rung true. Nice. They are all temporary settings in your debut novel, which may or may not be a horror novel, but those settings are certainly <laughs> spooky. I'll give you that as a sort of place to start. Uh, the book's called The God of Endings. And well, as anyone following me on social media in the last week will have seen, I really enjoyed it. It's a very atypical take on some key horror, I'm going to say it, tropes. And we can talk about all of that and more, but let's start by introducing the listeners to this story. What can you tell us about The God of Endings? So it is sort of a multi-generic work, um, and it's actually nice to get to describe it on a horror podcast because (laughs) um, in other settings, uh, vampire novels are maybe not met with as much enthusiasm. So um, that isn't always like foregrounded uh, in the summary, but it's a vampire novel. Um, It's a braided narrative, uh, so chapters alternating between two storylines. Um, And it tells the story of initially a young girl in upstate New York in the 1830s, um, lives through a tuberculosis outbreak that ravages her village and is attributed to vampires. Meanwhile, her grandfather, who is actually a vampire, uh, turns her into one. And the rest of the novel sort of braids her very long past, as you said, going to dark forests in Europe and going to alpine villages and eventually Egypt. Um, with a contemporary story in the 1980s where she is running a preschool. And in that timeline, um, she becomes involved in the family of a gifted 
and rather vulnerable student and uh, things kind of spiral from there. Right. So future guests, if you're listening, take note. That's how to give a synopsis. That was like a (laughs) nice level of depth that I can use as a springboard for a conversation without giving any spoilers away. So yeah, top top marks for that. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you mentioned the V word, right? Because this will be episode 133 of Talking Scared. And unless I'm forgetting something obvious, I think it may only be the second time that we've covered vampires. The first being Paul Tremblay's The Paul Bearers Club. And that was very tangentially a vampire story, kind of riffing on the legend of Mercy Brown. Mm. Yours, in its own way, is just as offbeat and slightly, well, very atypical take on the vampire. And I noticed you never use the word itself in the book. So my first question was going to be, do you consider this to be a vampire story? but it seems you do quite openly. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I absolutely do. Um, and one of the words for vampire is used, but it's in Russian. And it's funny, you should mention Mercy Brown because um, part of the story is inspired by the story of Mercy Brown. So one of the New England vampires. Um, so it's just funny that both of the vampire stories you've had on have had some something to do with her and her story. Yeah, well... Th- in this book, you, you take us to a more traditional vampire setting, which we can talk about in a bit. But is there a tradition of vampires in New England? Or, or was Mercy Brown a kind of one-off? That whole section oh at the gosh. start with the, with the TB outbreak, is that based in some kind of historical facts and, and lore and stuff? Yep, that is straight out of American history. It is super wild. I read Michael Bell's really cool book, uh, Food for the Dead, on the trail of New England's vampires. And they're a hundred years after the Salem witch trials. Um, there was tuberculosis sweeping the country and people were attributing it to vampires. Um, they were believing that their dead family members were coming back in the night and were slowly draining uh, the, the people who remained in the family. And that's why they were dying one by one. Um, it's wild. Uh, so it was discovered, the The discovery of this whole thing is very Stephen King novel. Um, <laughs> a couple of kids were playing on a hillside and they find some bones. And this was actually in a part of, uh, I, I want to say Connecticut, where um, there had been a serial killer. And so when these kids brought back these bones, the police thought that it was another site for victims of the serial killer. But they went and they looked at the bones and they dug up more and they found that it was a really, really old burial ground. And there was this grave that was painted red. The coffin was painted red. The bones had been broken. The skull had been cracked and split and the bones had been rearranged into a sort of Jolly Roger configuration. And so they realized like this is something else. And they started investigating further and they found more of these grave sites and more of them. And um, so this guy, Michael Bell has reconstructed the events and it, it kind of went from village to village and it was a genuine hysteria. Okay. I need to check out that book because that sounds too gothic for words. Yeah. It's amazing. So like, like I say, right, if you use my show as a kind a sort of weather vane of horror trends, which may be more than a little presumptuous on my part, but but if you do, the the lack of vampires would imply that the figure of the vampire has been out of vogue in recent years. This show's been going for sort of nearly three years. Two books dealing with vampires. That that's a, probably less than I would have imagined. So it seems that vampires aren't selling right now, you know, and I I know that if you look back over history, they go in and out of literary favor, the vampire, and we're in a fallow period. So I suppose what inspired you to take on such a kind of heavily weighted trope at a time when no one else was doing it? Oh my gosh, that, that question is just the total opposite of my, my lived experience, I think. Um, I was hesitant about doing it because I felt like it was being done too much and it was being done. I mean, literally I was working on the book without sharing what it was about for, I mean, years. Um, And 
writer friends of mine would make jokes about like, oh, what, like another vampire novel or something like that, you know? And and so it really seemed like, okay, I guess it's what everybody's doing and we're all kind of sick of it. Um, but that said, and and that might be in a genre not quite where you're selecting your reading material from, um, maybe more pop- popular fiction, which maybe is why more earnest horror writers aren't doing it as much. I don't know. Um, but I wrote it because I had to, um, I was just thinking weird thoughts as I love to do. And I was thinking about what would you do if you're going to live forever? And, but no, like really. And this woman just started talking to me and her voice was very compelling and she had a lot to say. And so I just started following her and listening and, um, so I almost feel like I didn't have a ton of choice. It was not a, I think I'm going to write a vampire book at all by any means. Oh, so was it kind of immortality begat the vampire that you needed a reason that your character could be immortal? Well, no. Um, she was a vampire from the first. So this is another dimension to the book. The book is very much also about children and motherhood and uh, relationships with children. And when I started the book, I had a three-year-old and a six-month-old. And I don't think I'm alone in this experience of feeling the most monstrous personally that I had ever felt in my life. Um, Because, you know, I was a flawed human, just like everybody else before I had kids. Who cares? You you get into a fight with a friend or you screw this up or you lose a job or whatever. Like we all have our our shit and and we learn from it. We grow. People get fed up and and leave or whatever. Um, But when you have kids, all of a sudden your flaws, your anger, your impatience, your irritability, it impacts them so so deeply and your uh, it may even impact them less than you imagine it does but you really uh <laughs> to invent a word grotesquify <laughs> the effect of your own monstrosity on these children and it it is a true profound horror the feeling of being monstrously flawed and having these beautiful sweet innocent children and wanting to give them nothing but angelic perfection, but not being able to do that. And um, so the vampire came from this really deep anguish that I felt at having this relationship where I wanted to give nothing but good things. And yet I couldn't help hurting. I couldn't help failing. I couldn't eradicate this sort of brokenness in myself. I couldn't be perfect no matter how much I wanted to. And so the main character who I refer to as Colette, but she goes by many names uh, over the novel, she has this nature that she cannot escape. And in many ways, she's a really admirable person. Um, She's got a lot of goodness and a lot of care and, and love to give. But she also kills people and (laughs) sucks them dry. And she's got a real vicious streak. And she actually, at certain points in her life, takes a deep pleasure in murder and butchery. Um, And she's trying to reconcile these parts of her nature with a lot of pain and agony. Um, And that came from (laughs) the experience of motherhood. (laughs) See, I, I have so much to say to that. Now, because of things that have been on this show previously, but also because of your book. So first of all, the sort of recognition of self as a monster has come up repeatedly on this show. Um, Mm -hmm. Often by debut novelists who were writing a book, either during the early days 
of motherhood or as a response to the early days of motherhood. Julia mm. finds the upstairs house is a, exactly a case in point. Anne Heltzel, who wrote a book called Just Like Mother, which is about the ridiculous expectations placed on women to be perfect and to want to be mothers. It's this, yeah, this, this theme of the monstrous mother comes up again and again and again. Uh, and it mm-hmm. seems to be a response to societal pressure rather than anything internal. But in your case, it sounds like that might, it might be a bit more internal, a bit more of your own sense of self. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Something you said then kind of resonates because in the book, you say that we are all the walked remains of imperfectly loved children. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And also in, late, quite late in the book, there is one character who is perhaps not being the best mother that she could be. And, and she says that, you know, she would be judged so much less harshly for being a bad person than being a bad mother. Mm hmm. So yeah, so that that all makes sense that you've said what you've said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about Colette because she is the kind of the big kahuna in all of this. <laughs> um, for a start, the, the book sort of weaves in and out of the existing tradition. So Colette can go out in daylight, for example. There's no mention of garlic or crosses, any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but her story starts in America. And then it quickly relocates to the more traditional sort of hunting ground for vampires of Eastern Europe, somewhere. I got the sense it was sort of between like Serbia and Bulgaria and Romania, that sort of neck of the woods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was the thinking behind that? Was it just practical? I've got to get to Europe. Or was it more of a a sense of playing with the the history of the vampire? I I guess um, it was more that I had a vision for her there. And I was excited to bring it to life. And uh, that was one of the sections of the book that I, um, that just propelled me forward. I wanted to get there and I wanted to explore it and uh, have her experience it. And so I had to make it happen because I wanted it to happen. Um, and, uh, and it was just really fun on top of that to have her be in one of the birthplaces of the vampire. Um, I mean, vampire research and scholarship really shows you that the vampire mythology springs up everywhere, but it's famous for for that region and maybe has an earlier start there than in some other places. But um, yeah, maybe that's a bad answer, but I just wanted it. Okay, that's a perfectly good answer. <laughs> I can't think of a better answer, to be honest. Right? Um, but what, what it does mean is that you've got this contemporary narrative in the 80s. Let's just call it contemporary, you know, because it gets too complicated. That's the more the most recent narrative yeah. in the 80s. Yes. And then mm-hmm. we get this great sort of device where her long life, or her, her long on death maybe, allows us to see all different sections of European and some American history and and also some Middle Eastern history and stuff. And it, what's cool is it allows you to kind of move through different genres because you've got a whole section in the war, which feels in mm-hmm. some way like a war drama, just mm-hmm. with some blood sucking. But when it starts in, in this very dark Germanic forest, um, it feels like a fairy tale. It feels like a really scary fairy tale. I mean, was was it. that intentional that sense of like changing genre might be the wrong word but you know that tonal change as as it went through were you playing around um you know that is something that i sort of just end up doing uh, i i almost feel like it's something particular to either my style or my psyche um i'm not a huge like fairy tale fan i don't just adore them and read them and whatever and sometimes I kind of struggle with these like a modern fairy tale I'm (laughs) not super into that but um but there is a fairy tale like storyteller voice that has popped up in a variety of things that I've written and I think that it could be something about the connection to the physical environment I, I I don't know. I have I have a science fiction novelette that I wrote that really feels like it borders between fairy tale and science fiction. And um so yeah, that's something I kinda need to or want to think about more 
as to why that comes out. But but I think it might also just be like a sort of whimsical element to my imagination that just asserts itself. Right. Okay. We've said a lot of things. I need to pin you down now as a writer because you've said a lot of stuff that's got me kind of wondering and unsure. Because so for a start, you said you felt like an imposter with the horror. And then you've written a science fiction novelette. And large swathes of this book are essentially realist. You know, it's at least in tone, if not in detail. And now you've mentioned whimsy. And there's there's definitely a thread of dark whimsy running through this book. And I mean, this is the broadest possible question to throw at an author. I do apologize. But because I haven't read any of your previous work, and this is a debut novel, mm-hmm. who are you as a, as a writer? What is your, <laughs> what's your raison d'etre? What's the kind of storyteller that you consider yourself to be? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that's an impossible question to answer. Yeah. But um, this will sound very, I don't know big for my britches, but I feel like my writerly soulmate is Ray Bradbury. Um, Nice. I I just adore him completely. You know, Something Wicked This Way Comes was a really revelatory reading experience for me as a young person, and it is very dark fantasy. Um, The Martian Chronicles is science fiction, but it's just as much fairy tale and uh, fantasy. I mean, Perhaps, I mean, there's an there's an element I think of fairy tale to some of those sections. Um, and and I have a video clip by him that I watch anytime I'm feeling listless, where he is just you know spitting and and going on and gesticulating about how he loves life and he loves the universe and he loves being here and he just wants to write stories. And <laughs> I I feel like yeah, I get it. I. I don't have an allegiance to a particular genre. Um, I do feel some partiality to science fiction, but I think my imagination just roves where it will and it doesn't like fences and, and doesn't even recognize them really. And if I said I felt like an imposter about being a horror writer, it's not that I guess <laughs> I've always thought of myself as very uh, scared. I have an overabundance of imagination, always have. And from a young age, I've been too scared to like watch the horror films or I've read horror, but it's always been like, ooh, can I do this? Can I get through this? <laughs> um, but I love it. You know, I love, I love horror. I am flattered to be included on a horror podcast. And I, I'm happy, like now I'm thinking, well, maybe I want to do more. Like, let's, <laughs> let's go further with this. Just, I was wondering whether your imagination lent itself to the macabre. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> But Bradbury is a great comparison. Something Wicked This Way Comes, I think, is the nexus of horror and fantasy and some degree of science fiction. But all those speculative genres, you can find them all in this just Gordian knot in Something Wicked This Way Comes. You know, I think I've said before that I had a relationship that fell apart because my girlfriend hated that book. And I was like, well, this is definitely not going to (laughs) work. I think think you made the right call. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Well, I'm married happily now, so I think I did, yes. Oh, (laughs) Thank you, Ray. But yeah, there is also a macabre though, like the, the old lady getting younger and becoming like a baby. Mm-hmm. There is something of that tonality in in the the God of Endings, you know, that kind of whimsical horror, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, the first story that I wrote as a kid was about a guy who finds a beautiful dead woman and like it it was very necrophilic and weird. And I wasn't even attuned to those tones. I was too young, but I've always been a, a dark weirdo, which, you know, I think everyone involved in this podcast or listening to it can Really <laughs> I'm glad you've said necrophilic and take it in, in, in ever so slightly sort of dodgy direction because of my next question. Because if you, if you hadn't said that, okay. this would have been like a clanging bell of a segue, but you've given me the, the NI need. Colette does book the vampire trend in loads of ways, you know, like from the law to the morals to her behavior. But the thing that really struck me is that she's an almost sexless figure. And vampires of both genders have, you know, long, always really been represented in literature as seductive or rapacious or even obscene. I mean, it doesn't begin yeah. with, but it hits its highs in, you know, Stoker's Dracula or, or mm-hmm. Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. They're like the Ur types. But your vamp is very, very unvampish. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, and that was that was one of those questions that 
going through the process of getting reader feedback and publication, it was like, okay, do we want this? Is that are you committed to this? Because this is kind of weird. So um, Colette does not have breasts. She does not have a vagina. Um, she has in in being turned into a vampire, her entire anatomy and her entire biology was transformed into this new creature. And they don't reproduce sexually. So she has no need for human sexual organs. Um, and there's a scene where this is revealed. Um, and I really, I really did feel committed to that. Um, because first of all, I'm tired of it personally. And, and also it just wasn't what I was interested in, in the writing of this book. And so I sort of wanted to close the door on that and just be like, that's not a thing here. Um, this is about other things, other themes. And I've actually gotten a good bit of positive response. I've heard a lot of people say like, it's nice that this book is not just like lover to lover or, you know, that's that isn't what it's doing and it's just a little new. So I've been encouraged, but I, I'm curious what your response was to that. Oh, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I, I've been, I don't know if you've been aware of the whole sex scene discourse on Twitter. Yeah, you're not on Twitter, are you? You've dodged that bullet, but there's been a whole sex scene discourse about people talking about consent before we even watch them. And it's this, this huh. real kind of new prurience has emerged um, online in recent weeks. It's become a whole shit show and people huh. have had some very, very bad hot takes. So, so now everyone is clamoring for more sex scenes as a kind of, pushback to this interesting yeah and i and i've long argued that we've made horror too sexless um we've upped the violence hmm. massively and eliminated sex and i've always said it's a bit of a problem because sex is such a core component of both positive and possibly very negative life experience when you take that out of a genre mm -hmm. you you are emptying out something that could be important that's my broader thoughts in terms of your book I just think it made mm. Colette a really interesting take on the vampire because she's an ever so slightly yeah. sort of repressed, yeah. ever so slightly frumpy French woman who is seems to be beautiful but just hasn't has no time for either seduction or being seduced. And it, it, it did free it up from other kinds of things to happen. And obviously it does also factor into something we'll talk about in a bit, which is the whole topic of children and motherhood and stuff so there, i think there is a there seems to me to be an actual practical purpose to that as well because it, it it opens up that entire debate yeah yeah that's really interesting um i sometimes feel a little bit like a disembodied head um just floating around with my thoughts and then i'm like oh yeah i should eat um <laughs> things like that you know and and that is one attribute <laughs> that i sort of gave colette um here, you can represent this for me, this this just being so lost in your head and so so focused on the internal conflict and the the philosophy that you almost forget you have a body, which I think is connected to forgetting the need for a lot of things that are sort of fundamental to living healthfully. <laughs> yeah, she's not healthy, is she? Not really. Mm -mm. No. Even for a vampire on a on a diet of blood alone, she still manages to not be that healthy in her eating habits. Yeah. <laughs> the weird thing is that though Colette's life is largely without sensuality, the narrative is full of it because it's a really heady kind of sensory book. You spend a lot of time evoking all the senses. And I could have picked like a hundred quotes, but... I think this one gives a good sense of it. Like at one point when she's very young, she does have a sort of a love interest very early on. It's, it's a slightly different kind of love than sexual, but she has a love interest. And she says, quote, I want to feel the liquid brown of his eyes in my mouth. I want to bury my face in the velvet of his voice and swim in the warm sienna of his skin. Now, synesthesia aside <laughs> that's just a really quite erotic sensuous rich pro style and i wondered is that your default style or are you making a narrative choice or a kind of point with the language um that 
is, if I have a default style, I would say that probably is it, but I don't always default to my default. Um, I also think that, you know, she's talking about a period in her youth and that just felt like how it feels to be 16, 17, 18 and in love for the first time. And she is, I mean, I think it's fair to say that any erotic nature that she has does sort of bleed out of her verbally. Her voice was very fun to work with and she let me go a little over the top with what might be my my default. Right, because that's the part where it felt like you were cleaving a little bit to a sort of prior vampire trope in that it is like sensuous is the word, you know, sensor. It's like a, you, you're bathing in the experience of this book. And it, I wonder whether there was something about the immortality that as she gets older, that fades. And whether you were making a point about how with such a long life, sensory stuff and, and the external world would have less impact or whether it become even more important, perhaps. I don't know. No, I think you're right. Uh, there's a line right at the very beginning where she talks about youth as being like this diffuse abundance and old age. So she's comparing it to the seasons and the colors that you experience in the seasons. And spring is just kind of frantic with all these blues and purples and pinks and yellows. And it's just everywhere and it's really scattered. Um, but then in the autumn, as the world is coming to its end, it distills and it concentrates and it becomes fewer colors but deeper and um more intense and i think that that sense of what happens to us over the arc of a life is very important to this book and definitely what you're saying about a sort of ennui that sets in and a desensitization to beauty and emotion and you know all the all the richness of life and that um, desensitization is is something that she is working against and that has taken hold of her um, over her years. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, I've seen enough sunsets. They don't really compel me anymore. But it's also a reaction to the tragedy that she's experienced in her life. She has intentionally developed a sort of gristle to protect mm. her from any more tragedy, uh, but the cost of that is the loss of that connection to the senses and to deep emotion and to the reward of deep love and reciprocated love. Um, so that's it's a big theme. It's also beautifully represented in her work as an artist because there's something poignant about the fact that she can represent the world so brilliantly yet she's always a, a remove from it. She's always an observer. So it, 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 you know, an artist is kind of the perfect job for her because she captures life through a lens, but only rarely does she participate in it, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and there's one moment in the book that's quite profound when she's talking about the role of light and dark in a still life painting. And she, I mean, it's quite a long passage, but she comes to the conclusion that, you know, quote, the absence of any significant darkness makes the light indistinguishable and the painting is bland and forgettable. Thinking of what you've just said then, that reads as a kind of a metaphor for, well, I suppose all life, but in particular Colette's life story, because there is so much darkness, but unlike a painting, it doesn't make the light shine brighter for her. Yeah, yeah. And I love, I love you pulling that quote because it's one of those lines that, you know, as a writer, you never know what is, or it's hard to know what is too subtle a whisper for people to pick up on and what is like too loud a shout, like don't beat us over the head with it. Um, and that, that section I was hoping would kind of strike the right volume level, um, and I was afraid it would be overlooked as just talking about art, but I don't. I think it was plenty loud. Um, but, and I think that this is for all of us, um, that we tend to fixate on the dark and really rail against it and feel incredible injustice at anything that is not light, anything that is not 
perfect and pleasant and easy and enjoyable, we get really pissed, myself included. <laughs> and um, and we don't tend to recognize what artists do know as a fundamental law that without a contrast, the thing doesn't exist. You cannot have pleasure without the pos- possibility of pain. You cannot have fulfillment without having experienced want or lack. Um, And you get to pick which side of the equation you fixate on. And she has picked the dark side. She has fixated on it and she has not recognized the contrast and the things that contrast with it and the way that loss opens up space for a new, something new, a gift to Mm -hmm. arrive and a gift that you don't expect because you don't feel entitled because you know that life is hard and painful and that nothing is guaranteed and nothing is yours forever. Everything you have, every day you have it is a gift. And without that knowledge, it's impossible to value things rightly, I think. Which brings us to the the governing theme, well, I think, of this story, which is immortality and in particular the question whether it's a blessing or a curse (laughs) easy question where do you stand on that (laughs) so easy um (laughs) you know i i stand where she stands her journey with this question does mirror my own and um i think that you know for me it I wanted it to be more a question of life versus non-life. As you said, as you mentioned, like as you get older, there's less appreciation for experience and things like that. And I think that that uh, senescence, that, that fallout of no longer, of becoming old and tired and no longer being able to suck the marrow from the bones, I think that's the problem. And that life is extraordinary. And I, I try to value it wherever I find it and to not sort of capitulate to the Thanatos uh, impulse, which I personally think is a, is a real thing right now. I mean, we just went through a pandemic. Like, I think so... We're all feeling a little world weary. We're all feeling a little life weary, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you talked about apocalyptic literature in, in another episode and, and the apocalyptic glee, I think you referred to. Yeah. Um, and that's that's sort of a different thing of like, oh, a fresh start. But I think I almost feel like there's a sort of apocalyptic lust, um, like a lust for an ending, like, let's just get this done let's just get this over with. Like it's mm-hmm. not going well. Um, and we're tired of the fight and we're tired of putting one foot in front of the other and catastrophe is coming. Don't we all feel it? Just get it over with. And I think that that is tragic and I feel it myself all the time, but I, I want to, you know, Dylan Thomas rage, rage against mm-hmm. the dying of the light. But I mean, well, that exactly that that apocalyptic lust is is where you take that far enough, you get a death cult, you get Jonestown, mm-hmm. or you get yeah. you know some jihadish fundamentalist, or you you know um, Heaven's Gate and all that stuff, where it's like I'm done with this shit. Mm-hmm. Let me just go and live in the spaceship that's behind the comet because that's got to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and it is sad because I think it, it it's the final decision of somebody who's at the end of the literally the end of the tether isn't it it's just that they co-opt it as a as a positive move as opposed to what, what it yeah. actually is which is exhaustion yeah mm-hmm. and, exhaustion mm-hmm. yeah and exhaustion plays its part in this because as much as colette remains sort of in the prime of her life she's become exhausted by pain and by it's a bit like Highlander, isn't it? You know, who wants to live forever when when, when love must die? Mm-hmm. So I felt for ages like it was an easy answer. You know, I, I want a normal four score and 10 years, whatever. I yeah. want to live a normal amount and then I will shuffle off and it'll all be nice. And then quite late on, um, a sort of minor character reappears and, and sort of has this phrase, which is um, 
everything forever is better than nothing forever. And I was like, oh yeah, that actually is quite hard to argue with. <laughs> right? I mean, but it, but I'm, it's not an easy question. But, but if you think of it as everything forever or nothing forever, I mean, I think we are drawn to the nothing because like, that's just terrifying. But, but I, I mean, but when you think about it, it feels like it should be everything. It should be everything forever. And that the reason we can't choose that is, is a lack of courage and a lack of energy um, and fear. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that wins the, the equation, but, but it kind of feels like it shouldn't, you know. Talking about fear, where all this stuff comes back into horror in a big way is that you turn immortality into a vulnerability rather than a strength. And that is a really novel approach. As we think of vampires, you know, impervious, you know, they heal, you can't kill them. You know, there's no stakes, no pun intended, literally no pun intended. There's no mm. stakes because they can't die. Um, you've turned it into a vulnerability because there's a couple of situations in which Colette finds herself potentially facing an eternity or a very long time of kind of entrapment or suffering mm -hmm. because she can't die. And there's one bit where she thinks about throwing herself into the sea with an anchor around and she thinks that she says like, well, oh, would I become uh, just some monster, some Charybdis at the bottom of the sea, eating, un starving and eating unwary divers. And it's almost like a another version of being buried alive, but mm -hmm. buried alive whilst you're out in the world. That to me was the core of the horror in the book. The idea that you could live forever, but end up trapped. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's compounded by her appetite, which she tries frequently to sort of suppress um, or control, or even she tries to starve herself at various points and it doesn't go well. She becomes totally unchained and horrifyingly dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, so she can't eat. There's just no way out. There's no way out. You have to do the balance beam. There's nothing else for it. There's, there's never an off day, is there? She never gets yeah. an off day where she can just relax. She's always having to deal with being all all the the pain in the ass of being alive in the modern world, but also being a vampire. <laughs> having yeah. to like go and find a way to get into her neighbor's stable so she can drink the cow's blood. Like the minutiae, the admin of being a vampire is exhausting. <laughs> Yes, yes, the admin. I love that. <laughs> but but she is dangerous. She is like truly dangerous. At times for, for good and for bad, she's very dangerous. Um, uh -huh. But <laughs> there's a delicious black humour in the fact that in the contemporary narrative, she's a preschool teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, a quote, I just, it made me laugh out loud. She's like, She's got these kids doing art in the class and she says, and she's hungry. And she, she says, I try to forget that they are little sacks of blood running around on short legs. Um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't overlook the comedy of the situation, but it did feel like we're supposed to feel uneasy and that there's also a poignancy to her relationship with these kids. Yeah, yeah. And the uneasiness of that situation was one that I had to put a lot of thought into and it was a, a sort of little scale that was easy to tip too far in one direction or the other um and so yeah she talks about a lion in a zoo sort of looking at the little fat children on the other side like mm -hmm. blowing strawberries on the glass and, <laughs> and and she just has to let them crawl all over her and uh even as she would love to take a bite out of their arm. Um, but she's got this incredibly deep relationship with them and wants, and also simultaneously wants nothing but their safety. And, and, and so the horror is, is 100% directed at herself. She is the thing she is most scared of. Um, and I think the thing that the reader is most scared of too. Did you ever have a moment where you thought about maybe she would feed on a child? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. And I will tell you a 
closely guarded secret that's about to become not closely guarded. In the original, so this started out as a novella. Um, and in the novella, she was feeding off the children. That was how she sustained herself. Right. Why, <laughs> why did that change? Why did that change? Well, first of all, it changed because that's incredibly disturbing and <laughs> hard hard for uh, any kind of large audience to cope with. And I think I mentioned that maybe to my agent, possibly even after we had sold the book. And she was like, are you kidding me? Is that true? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's true. And what what's great about it is that this was this was my MFA thesis. And I had three advisors, all brilliant writers who I just adore and admire. And only one said in the thesis meeting, you know, I'm just going to put this out there. I don't think she should be feeding on the children. And the other two were like, oh, what? Really? <laughs> and I also was like, what? No, I can't change that. Um, but I I ended up just thinking that he was right because I think if you're going to let your protagonist flirt with being a victimizer of children, you need to really mean it. You need That needs to be a thoughtful choice. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem essential to the themes that were central to the book and and thus it felt distracting and even unhelpful but it was fun to write that novella (laughs) (laughs) i imagine yeah this is the kind of podcast where you can come on and go oh yeah she eats all the kids yeah we'd be okay with it (laughs) i think at that point you couldn't really argue that it was anything but a horror novel well you know I'm not even sure because she didn't do it in horrifying ways. She was very, very careful. She was almost like a nurse. Um, there were there was, you know, juice and cookies for a snack <laughs> afterwards. It was it was just the absolute sweetest, tamest, most careful blood sucking of children you can imagine. Um, and so I don't think it actually made it more horrifying. It may have made it less because there wasn't this sen- this fear of like is she going to do this right to one okay of the kids? yeah I can um that. because it was done yeah yeah the worst thing has happened already yeah exactly exactly and that's why horror writers go for it mm-hmm. because it's the thing that every fiber in our being says no no please no and well and there is a very lovable child in the heart of all this this child leo mm-hmm. i'll put it this way right when i read the phrase lush prose Right, on the back of your 450-page book. I'm not going to lie, I groaned. Because normally, that kind of phrase means worthy and dense and ornate and entirely lacking in story momentum. I agree. So I was like, oh, God, I've got to read this in a week. It's going to just be a lot of describing the daisies. But I couldn't have been more wrong, right? Because it is a thriller. Like It's got the grand scale of living through history and horror in Colette's undeath and all that but there's also this domestic drama playing out in the contemporary section with leo and his mother catherine and i kept trying to work out how you'd naturally found that second story this could have so easily been you know Anne writer's interview with the non-horny vampire right and instead it becomes (laughs) this (laughs) this as you say a braided narrative with this whole other thing how did those two stories come together in your mind? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I recently read The Shining and I was not that far before I was like, oh shit, this is my book. <laughs> like there, There's that same conflict of an internal conflict with the protagonist fighting this monstrous, dangerous nature while being forced into proximity, mm-hmm. close proximity with someone extremely vulnerable and also someone who is the last person he and she would ever want to do harm to. Um, and then this choice is also forced to the foreground. Uh, Colette is, is forced by engaging with Catherine, Leo's mother, who is not the best. Um 
it becomes a little bit of a tale of two monsters. And one of them does not look like a monster or, you know, wouldn't she, one of them is not a vampire, Mm -hmm. um, but is still rather monstrous. And the other one is a textbook monster, but actually has a great deal of humanity that she doesn't even give herself credit for. And she, in being forced into that family, she's sort of forced to recognize her own humanity in contrast to this other monster and to um, take responsibility for the care she feels for this child. And it doesn't let her continue to just float passively through life. She has to make a choice again, which she has avoided very carefully for a long time. It's interesting you say that that Catherine isn't a vampire, because I think you could argue she's an emotional vampire. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh-huh. But we've talked for an hour here and got on swimmingly and been great friends. And this could be the point where I ruin it because I've got a feeling that I'm going to say something now that you may reject as a premise. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Colette's character is, I think, as consistent as it could be when you're dealing with such a long period of time, right? Um, and my impression mm-hmm. of her was consistent for 90% of the book. I saw her as a fundamentally good person, sometimes a victim, sometimes a hero, always good. Then in the very last section of the book, and I'm going to do this without spoilers, don't worry. Um, mm-hmm. She she does something very questionable. And for me, more than that, she passes judgment on someone in a way that I found really shocking. Right, because it's hmm. to do with her response to someone having a mental health crisis who clearly needs help, and it made me reconsider everything about who Colette is and whether she is really good or not. Hmm. Is that something you recognize? Is it something you intended? D- does that register at all with you? Um. Well, it's it's very interesting, and we're still friends. Um, but, uh, I knew that people were going to sort of fall into camps regarding the ending. Um, I knew there would be people who would love it and I knew there would be people who would hate it. It is a tricky subject to deal with when people, parents, mothers, anybody has, I don't even know what to call it because there's some, there's some character issues with the mother and then there's mental health issues and I'm I, I'm not sure who's ever really qualified I mean I suppose a mental health professional would be qualified but to parse them out and and sort of say like well this is this and that is that and you're responsible for this you're not responsible for that but I think that Colette witnessed a sort of callous disregard that she found to be too much and more than this child um, deserved to deal with. I think that 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 to her was inexcusable. Okay. Because I felt like that for the vast majority. I'm like, God, Catherine is a disaster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You Right, to bring this full circle, you said the book was in many ways inspired by you feeling monstrous as a mother Mm -hmm. yet your representation of the mother it's not redemptive you literally just go oh she's a monster yeah and i do think that that is a counter narrative to the the more dominant narrative at the moment like i don't know i saw the it's probably not even the last Spider-Man anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of one of the last Spider-Mans where where all of the villains couldn't couldn't be killed; they had to be rehabilitated. Uh-huh. And you know, in one sense, like I agree with that that this idea that like people are not irredeemably lost, and that that we shouldn't be just trying to punish and execute the the wicked among us for sure. But I also don't like when literature becomes too uh, consistent in following a certain like cultural theme mm-hmm. 
of the moment. And I do believe that that villains exist. And and I mean, I was thinking about the Joker in uh, The Dark Knight um, and just about villains and how uh, and about motives and things like that and how the Joker in The Dark Knight is such a fascinating villain because he toys with that idea of motives and he you know offers these mm. really sad stories of trauma that oh maybe that's why i am the way i am yeah you now got these scars <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and then but the answer seems to be no i just like it i just like it i like pain i like hurting i i enjoy it i take pleasure in it and i don't know which one uh probably those are less frequently occurring in the world than the trope that he's mocking. Um, I certainly believe that trauma begets trauma. Um, but I also think that we can maybe at times, and I don't know if this book is a case of that, but go too far in trying to make sense or just working so hard on that part of the equation, which we should, but overlooking Leo, overlooking, you know, the consequences for, mm -hmm. you know, what has happened, what's been done. And I mean, she's done some really sinister things to this kid. And so I think you can say, you know, like, mom, I know you're raised by an alcoholic, but nevertheless, you can't treat me this way, you know, or whatever, like fill in the blank. My mom's a saint. So that is not a reference to her. But, but you know, there's, there's some point where it's like, okay, we have this understanding that people are flawed and that their vices don't arise typically from nowhere. Uh, but we can also say enough is enough. Like I'm not, I'm not going to be around that. I'm not mm -hmm. going to participate in that. I'm not going to enable that. And I don't know, maybe I just like to rock the boat a little. I do have that side in me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. It, it. it Just to close at that, it, it does rock the boat and you are right because we have become a little bit, um, in a groove, I think, like, you know, poor liberals, we torture yeah. ourselves, don't we? But we, we, if, you know, if someone has mental health issues, we, we've pushed back against that being a mark of villainy with such consistency that it seems almost shocking when a villain can have mental health issues. Yeah. Does, does that make sense? And it's like we've pushed back against the idea of mothers being monstrous and we've rationalized yeah. it with postpartum and all of these things that obviously do exist in real life, you know, but it, 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 it feels quite shocking for you to just go, Oh no, this person is all of that, but she, she, yeah, she's, she's just a real shit bag. <laughs> and I think maybe, yeah, maybe the, the tree does need shaking sometimes because that, you know, those narratives become too embedded, I suppose. And then, and I can see the shining thing as well about, you know, passed on trauma and being trapped yeah. in proximity. Yeah, well, that that finally then, with the mention of The Shining, is a good way to segue into my closing questions. The first of which is, can you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? I can. I feel like my experience with horror as a genre is pretty limited. But uh, so I've heard you speak about like doing harm to children on a, a number of episodes. And so I would recommend... Sorry, if, if someone isolates that audio, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> Yeah, how you about how you love doing harm to children? Yeah, they, I've heard you talk about that. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so there, uh, Karen Joy Fowler has a collection of short stories called "What I Didn't See," and it's fantastic. It is, um, I mean, she is an extraordinary writer, speculative kind of like she's very all over the map as, in terms of genre as well, but. This collection, um, she really deals with that question of, of doing harm to children in fiction or in art. Um, and it's, it's fun because the opening story is called The Pelican Bar. And it's about a, a young, like a high school girl who's acting up and gets shipped off to this sort of reform program. And that may or may not be run by monsters or aliens. We're not totally sure. Um, but they're very abusive and uh it's a nightmare and there's another story about a child being lost in a national park and um and a bunch in between um but then she ends with this story called king rat where she addresses that theme head on and it has some sort of like uh, allusions to the pied piper and just these these stories we tell about children and and um 
and the gruesome things that we allow to happen to them. And she's, I mean, obviously it's what I love about it is that she's both doing that in the collection and then also saying like addressing like, why am I doing this? And is it okay? And, and it's also just like beautiful and fascinating, the whole thing. So I would recommend that. That sounds brilliant. Also anything by Kelly Link. I'm obsessed with Kelly Link and she's, her stuff is so weird and, and so wild and wonderful. I'm in the final throes of getting Kelly on the show. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Because hopefully we're trying to work out schedules. Our books are coming um, out on the same so... day. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, she wrote a short story called Skinder's Veil. I've not read that one. Oh, it's in Ellen Datlow's, um, what's it called? When Things Get Dark, which is her anthology all based upon Shirley Jackson. She basically asked writers to kind of write Shirley Jackson-esque stories. Oh, cool. And Kelly Link wrote Skinder's Veil, which is brilliant. And it's going to, that's going to be in her new collection, cool. Black Dog. I can't remember what it's called. My mind's gone White blank. White Cat, Black Dog, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's the one. It's worth buying the collection just for that story. It's phenomenal. Yeah. But Karen Joy Fowler, I can't forgive her for We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves because animal suffering hurts me and the thing she does the chimps in that story is devastating <laughs> okay so then i have to ask are you mad so, at me because i'm not very nice to animals in this movie. didn't want to mention it <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't want to mention it but <laughs> the poor cow and also the poor dog <laughs> that just was just doing his job and like didn't didn't even get an on <sighs> on page death which i actually was quite glad about yeah. but still yeah made me Made me a touch angry. Made me like, I would have rather Colette been eating the children, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. She might be a little hypervigilant in her defensiveness of Leo, possibly. <laughs> well, m- my last question, Jacqueline, is what truly scares you? Um, well, first of all, everything scares me. So we'll just start with that. But um, if you kind of do the math... Ghosts should definitely be scarier than, like, slashers. I'm scared of both. I lock my door at night for sure. Um, But, you know, like, just as far as a numbers game, there aren't that many slashers. And they don't Mm -hmm. kill that many people. So the odds are fairly low that you are going to be one of their victims. Um, But ghosts, like, if you follow the logic, their population is only increasing. There are only more ghosts as we go along and like more ghosts per square mile. So chances are pretty good you're going to run into one. So I feel like ghosts just makes more sense as like a genuine concrete fear to carry around in your daily life. Seems legit to me. (laughs) We'll perhaps get into that in the Patreon extra stuff. Maybe. Let's see. I just really appreciate the fact that you began this conversation with a really, really good synopsis <laughs> and you ended it with a scary thing that is quite funny because there's sometimes people say like, oh, my kid's dying. And I'm like, I get why that's frightening, but I've never got to kind of go, oh, okay, well, thank you. And <laughs> bye-bye, you know? So yeah, thank you for saying ghost because it's both a, jo- a genre relevant fear and I don't feel like a sociopath for just ending the conversation now. <laughs> listen i do want to stress again how much i enjoyed this book it is probably genre adjacent it has got lush prose but not in a bad way that never gets in the way of a propulsive plot um i really really liked it and i i do think everyone should give this a go when it comes out on march 7th but jacqueline holland thank you for talking scared that was so fun oh my gosh that was the most fun ever I really like this book. I didn't expect to. Like I say, the whole lush prose thing is normally a red flag. That kind of language can get in the way of a story, I find. But this book is both character study, evocative sensory piece, and a page-turning thriller. And I also think it's definitely horror, despite whatever self-doubt Jacqueline has. There is plenty of nastiness here. Sure, it's not Clive Barker. It's not even Anne Rice, but the existential implications of immortality are ripe with this really profound terror. That's subtext, and at a text level, Colette does kill plenty of people. (laughs) 
I'm still not sure about the ending. Not because it's flawed at all, but because it's shocking. And if you see flawed and shocking as the same thing, we probably won't get along. I still think that a certain character is a victim of mental illness as much as she is a antagonist. And I think she's treated cruelly rather than justly. But Jacqueline makes a great point about certain themes becoming rote and routine and needing a challenge. It did shock me that she was willing to portray that character as a villain because we've become so habituated to pushing back against such portrayals of mental health. But isn't that itself patronising? Can't someone who is mentally ill also be an arsehole? Don't they have that scope and that potential, even that right, I suppose? I think The God of Endings pulls a, dare I say it, bold move, especially considering that much of the book seems to stem from Jacqueline's own sense of her own failings, and I'll be interested as hell to hear what you think. But yeah, if you're really craving a vile, upsetting, disturbing read, like the book I'm currently reading, Damn You, Max Booth, The God of Endings isn't for you. But to literally everyone else, I I do recommend it. It was also great to finally talk about vampires, because how mad that we've got this far and barely touched on the greatest icon in contemporary horror. I'm sorry, but... I don't think Paul Tremblay's The Paul Bearers Club counts. That book is many things, but it's only tangentially a vampire story. And it was good to dive into the, you know, the bloody heart of the subgenre this time around. And I'm also eyeing up Isabel Cagnas's The Vampire of El Norte that's out later this summer. Because I loved Isabel's first book, The Hacienda, and you can go back and listen to that episode but I'm really hoping to have her back on the show for more fangy fun in the Old West. What are your thoughts on vampires? Do you want more, less, a return to sexy, or feral, or shiny? (laughs) Or should we keep the stake through that trope's heart for a few more years? Let me know about that or anything. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. And if you can, please, my friends, subscribe and leave a review, because it makes a massive difference to visibility and listenership. The patrons there, if you want more Talking Scared, I've just introduced my new Hushed Tones episodes. They are monthly reviews of the books I read to get into what I really think in a bit more detail, because I know you're all buying books based on this show, which is a responsibility that I feel. I'm sure next week's guest will need no support from me to shift copies, because, yeah, it's finally happening. We'll be graced by the grand dame of dystopia herself, Margaret Atwood. She's on Talking Scared. It's unbelievable. That's already recorded, and you can hear me stutter my way through that conversation next Tuesday. Until then... Stay hydrated, increase your iron levels, and have a good old lie-in. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.